Well, welcome again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25, the end of the chapter. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these fine gentlemen will bring a Bible right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 this morning. Peter writes, starting in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Time of my message this morning is submitting to submission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to gather together to be in your word and knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to give us understanding and application from your word. Lord, thank you that you give us not only knowledge, but application. How can we apply these truths to our daily life that that would cause us to fall more in love with you and to just grow in our walk with you? So bless our time together. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you especially speak to their heart today? Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a story about a little boy that was playing with a very expensive vase in his home. When he put his hand inside the vase, but he couldn't pull it out. And his father tried as well and, and tried his best to get the little boy's hand out of the vase, but couldn't. Just when he thought of breaking the expensive vase, he thought, well, I'll try one more thing. He says, okay, son, this is what I want you to do. I want you to see my fingers. I want you to straighten them like this and try to give it one more tug, one more pull. And the little boy said, oh, Dad, I couldn't put my fingers out like that because if I did, I would drop my dime. Just holding on to that. Submission. It's not a popular word in our society today. We want what we want, and we don't want anyone telling us otherwise. Everything in our culture screams at us to do what we want, the way we want it, how we want it, any way we want it. You know, many advertisers over the years have learned this and thus have created slogans that have fed our appetite for pleasing ourselves. Remember Burger King? Have it your way. You know, their, their big slogan was that. Or McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Hardee's, feed your happy. You know, I'm going back a little ways. L'Oreal, because you're worth it. Advertisers know, advertisers know how to feed into the selfishness in us, especially, you know, Super Bowl. I mean, last week... A 30-second Super Bowl commercial in the millions of dollars. 
Why do they do it? Because they know people will buy what they offer. Any given holiday, you know, the, uh, there are these special holiday sales. This week it's President's Day sale. You see it all over the place. So in honor of all the past presidents, go out and spend lots of money you don't have on things you don't need. That makes sense. That's what the government does every day. So, um, but you see, advertisers know if they can get people to, to want something bad enough that they really don't need, they will go out and buy it. Now, for us as believers, the real question becomes not what I want, but what does God want for me? Not how I deserve a break today, but how can I serve the Lord today? Because it all boils down to this thing we call submission. It's a surrendering of our will over to to God's will and what God wants for our lives. In fact, the Bible teaches that we are no longer uh, to live for ourselves, but we're to live for God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, in our passage this morning, Peter has been showing us how to live our lives in an unbelieving world in an honorable way. And he showed us several ways to do this. First, we looked at the relationship between the Christian and the government, as we saw last week. We're to submit to, we're to subject ourselves to, to be good citizens, basically. Secondly, socially, that is what we're going to look at today, between the employer and the employee relationship, or in this case, as Peter puts it, the slave and his master. And next week, we're going to look at a wife submitting to an unbelieving husband. So all you ladies can know you're going to skip next week. No, I'm just kidding. We'll get to the husbands as well. But if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see a submissive servant. Number two, we're going to look at a submissive savior. And we'll close with submissive sheep. But first, a submissive servant. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the bad and ugly. No, it doesn't say that. To the harsh. Now, as believers, we are all servants of Jesus Christ. That means we've been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong to God. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God has called us as believers to be servants. Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after to be first, rather, he shall be last and a servant of all, in Mark 9.35. We know on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus set a pattern for his disciples by assuming the role of a servant and washing his disciples' feet. In fact, throughout Scripture, we read words like obey and yield and submit. Why? Because that's what a servant of the Lord does. So here Peter's telling us in verse 18 to be servants, be submissive. That word servants should rightly be translated slaves. Now, let me say right off the bat, there is nothing good about slavery whatsoever. Slavery is wrong on any account. The Bible sees it as wrong. In fact, slavery goes against the very grain of the New Testament idea of redemption, which means to set somebody free by paying a price. Redemption is to set a slave free by paying the redemption price. But we need to know that slavery had a huge role in the Roman Empire at the time that Peter penned these words. But the kind of slavery back then was much different than the kind of slavery we think about today. The slaves at that time were not only there for menial tasks such as cleaning the house and serving food, 
But many of these slaves were, they were doctors, they were teachers, they were musicians, they were actors, they were secretaries, they were stewards. They were, they were all slaves. Basically, anyone who was, wasn't of some political or royal descent was a slave. And as slaves, a master could treat them however they pleased because in Roman law, a slave was not a person. A slave was a thing. They had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. In fact, historians tell us that the Roman Empire, at the time of this writing, there was as many as 60 million slaves. Now, some people wonder, well, how can there be 60 million slaves when, when there wasn't 60 million people registered in the population of Rome at that time? The answer is simple. Slaves were not considered to be people. They're, therefore, they were not considered to be a part of the population. In fact, according to Roman law, the only difference between a slave and a beast or a farmyard cat was that, that a slave happened to be able to speak. Aristotle wrote this, There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things, indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Man, aren't you grateful we don't have slavery today? However, we do have employees and employers that can seem like slavery, and that's what Peter has a word to say to both. And I think in our society today, some employers can look at employees as the same way, just some, some tool in an assembly line. Bosses that are out there demanding productivity that's impossible to meet, always threatening with being fired. And yet on the other hand, there are employees who just need to stop being lazy and get to work. So we have that conflict. Added to the fact that, that the, the, this whole conflict over the COVID and mask mandates and, and vaccination mandates and trying to work in an environment where you disagree with your company's policies it can be a very difficult thing, and, and many problems have been produced, especially for believers not wanting to be forced to take a vaccine. Men and women have lost their jobs, or have been harassed, threatened, even blackmailed for seeking a religious exemption from the vaccine. So we know there's a, there's a lot of conflict in, going on in the workplace, even between Christian bosses and Christian employees. So I think it's timely that Peter addresses the problem between slaves and masters because we can apply it to the workplace today. Now the problem was, at the time Peter wrote this, slaves and masters were both coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were both being born again. So now the slave and the master might gather together at the same house for fellowship, for Bible study. They would worship together. They would share in communion together. They would have a great Sunday together. But then come Monday morning... It would be weird because it's back to that slave-master relationship. In fact, some slaves could have actually been the pastor on Sunday and the servant on Monday. And you can see how that would create problems. Listen, what Peter's dealing with then still happens today. I read a story about a man who was an elder in the church and his Christian boss happened to attend the same church. Well, the elder had to correct this Christian boss on certain sin issues and when he did, within days, the elder was fired from his job, a job that he had for some 15 years. So we see how this problem can happen today between the relationship of a slave and a master when both of them are saved. There would be that tendency for the Christian slave to take advantage of his master and not work as hard, or the master to demand more of, of the slave because he's a fellow Christian. So with that, Peter says, when it comes to slaves and masters, in verse 18, he says, Slaves, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. 
This word submissive, it's very graphic. It means to rank yourself under someone else in order to lift them up, in order to, to build them up. Could you imagine how hard it would be at that time? Because the natural tendency of a slave who was a believer would have seen himself as better than his unbelieving master. And he could have this holier-than-now attitude. I don't have to take this. Who does this guy think he is? In the mortal words of Johnny Paycheck, take this job and shove it. I'm out of here. There would be this, this conflict. And that's why Peter says, be submissive to your masters with all fear. That word fear means respect. Be respectful. Don't be bitter. Don't be a bitter employee. Don't be the kind of person who always has this negative disposition, always complaining. Work hard, work well. That's a practical command. But that really isn't so bad if you have a Christian gentle boss. You're blessed. But that's not always the case. Some bosses can be quite harsh, as as Peter puts it. The word for harsh in verse 18, it's an interesting one. It's the word scolios. It's where we get... Uh, have you heard the word scoliosis? It's a twisted spine. So some bosses can be twisted, harsh, crooked. You know, you can have a crooked boss bent on making your life miserable. They're twisted. They're wound up like a pretzel and bent with stress and the pressures of life. Uh, and a boss like that can, in turn, be very, very cruel. Yet Peter, again, says to the good and to the bad, don't be ugly, <laughs> Submit to submission. Be submissive with, with all fear and respect. Listen, there are plenty of people out there who are crooked, all but up, not just bosses. But that still doesn't give us the right as Christians to be cruel back or to complain or to do poor work or to treat bosses without respect. I read a poll that said that, uh, it was taken that 75% of employees say that their boss is the worst part and the most stressful part of their job. It's actually a website that has bad bosses tweets on it and, and employees who've taken revenge. Listen to this. One woman tweeted, In college, I used to work at Kmart in their cafeteria. I requested my graduation day off. They denied it. So I reported the nest of roaches that kept ignoring it to the local health department and graduated in peace. <laughs> or one man tweeted this. Years ago, I was scheduled for a double shift at Olive Garden. I told them my grandma died, and they said, Well, then can you just work one shift? I was so furious it asked me that I never went back. Also, I was lying. My grandma was fine. But still. <laughs> employer, employee. They're all both bad. I read a story about a boss that made anyone late in the, in the, to a meeting stand in the corner for the entire time and that it had others who said something stupid stand on their chair or on the table. Imagine that. I don't think I'd want to work there. One more I read, of a cut a peach wrong. One boss thinks it justifies a punch in the face. Listen, I'm not saying you have to submit to some boss punching you in the face. If they're going to do personal harm to you or sexual harassment, you don't stand for it. But just because you may have a boss with an irritating personality or on some ego trip, Peter tells us through God's word that we're to treat our bosses with submission and with all fear. In other words, just because your boss can be a real jerk doesn't mean you've got to be a jerk back or do lousy work. In fact, Peter says, place yourself under that person to lift them higher. Because the attitude of a servant is always, what can I do for, for another? How can I help them? How can I lift them up? You're to be in submission to him or her as long as he or she is not asking you to do that, which is clearly forbidden in Scripture, is clearly sin. Because this word submission here also has the idea of freedom of choice. It's subjecting yourself to. It's something you do voluntarily. 
Not because you feel like your boss is a great person or because you think he deserves it or because you think you're going to get a promotion if you do. You do it because of your testimony and love for Jesus Christ. Now, if you happen to have a twisted, harsh boss bent on making your life miserable and you're suffering day after day, first of all, I would certainly be praying about getting another job. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. God may be calling you somewhere else and this is the way to get you out of that situation that you're in. But if God hasn't given you that option yet, know that God's word says you, you just suffer in that job. When you do, it's commendable. Look at verse 19 and 20. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. The word commendable means to find favor or is it acceptable to God. God looks on you in a favorable way when you're mistreated, but you handle your words and your actions with grace and respect. God is going to give you more grace than to keep going when you're under such pressure like that. I mean, think about this example that Peter gives here. We have a servant, and he's trying to serve his master well, but for some reason, his master is just being a real jerk to him, purposely mistreating him, but the servant just keeps taking it and taking it. God's word says, that that servant will find favor from God, blessings from the Lord. But, Peter says in verse 20, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? That word beaten actually means to be struck with the fist. And that was often the treatment of slaves in Peter's day. So if a slave would steal a lie, become rebellious and refuse to work, his master might take him and give him a real going over, a real beating with his fist. Peter is saying that if you have been beaten for any such fault and you take it patiently, you've got nothing to brag about. It's all your own fault. God's not going to commend you for your patience in a case like that. Listen, if you work at Andy's Frozen Custard and as you serve the customer, it's one scoop for you and two scoops for me, and you get fired, it's your own fault. Okay, there it is. That's why I don't work for Andy's. On a side note, do you know they're building an Andy's right down the street from our new property? Just found that out. I'm I'm just telling you. So we really need to pray that we can get over there to that. My point is, listen, if if you lie, cheat, steal from your company and get fired, harassed, you deserve to. God isn't going to commend you. If you're wasting company time by taking extended lunch breaks or cruising the internet when you should be working and and, and, and the boss docks you of your pay or, or fires you. You have no room to say, oh, that's not fair. I'm being mistreated. They're an awful company. No, you're being treated exactly the way that you deserve. But again, Peter says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, of course, the natural reaction in all of us when we are treated unjustly is to strike back, is to, to get even. But Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who, who were before you. John R. Stott gives, gives this uh, exhortation, illustration. People are illogical, unreasonable and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. 
Um, honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for the few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you do help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. That's what Peter said. This is commendable before God. K.P. Johannan, in his book, Touching Godliness Through Submission, writes this. Submission to God's delegated authority is one of the most wholesome and liberating truths ever given to us by God. It affects our life positively at every level. This truth, however, remains hidden from most of us because Satan has taken this concept and twisted it into a negative term. Granted, submission may not be easy in our flesh, but the benefits that we receive far outweighs the struggles involved. Again, when we die to our pride, submit to God's authority in our lives, the benefits will follow. Now, this brings us to our second point, a submissive Savior. We're to be submissive servants because we have an example in our submissive Savior. Look at verse 21 through 23. Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. This Greek word that Peter uses for example in verse 21 is very vivid. It, it, it literally means to write under, to trace letters for copying. It has the idea of when when kids are learning to write and they put all the little dots that that have the the shape of the letters and they take their pencil and they they follow the dots. That's what Peter is speaking of here. He's he's speaking of Jesus. He says that you should follow his steps. It has the idea as as Jesus walked ahead of you, then you put your feet in his footsteps. Kind of like when you were a kid and, and the snow was there and your parents or mom or dad would walk in front of you and you would find their footprints in the snow and you put your feet there so you can walk through there. In the same way, Jesus is our example. And we closely follow his footsteps to see how we should respond when it comes to being a servant, when it comes to, being, uh, to, to suffering in the workplace. Now I want to point out a couple of things that Jesus didn't do and being an example to us as a submissive Savior and, and a few things that he did do. First, a couple of things that he didn't do. Peter writes in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was reviled, especially by the religious leaders. That word revile is very inclusive. Vine's dictionary defines it this way, a sinful speech. It's all kinds of evil talk. It's a brawler, a busybody, or complainer, coarse jesting, murmuring, tattling, secrets, whisperings, lying to someone or defaming a person's character in the, is a sin of uh, reviling. It also can be used in profanity and blasphemy. And we read here that our Lord was reviled, yet he did not revile in return. You know, that's something that we really need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to accomplish in our lives. Why? Because of our pride. When someone says something wrong about you or makes up stories about you or against you, against your character, our first reaction, man, it's in our flesh. We want to revile back, hit him back with both barrels. Oh, yeah, well, and then we just let it all spew out. It's human nature. It's human nature that has to be restrained and brought in and say no to because that human nature, that old man wants to fight back. We want to get revenge. 
True story. I heard Pastor Skip Heisig share this recently. A man created a product called Revenge, selling for $3.99. He was just sick and tired of smokers blowing secondhand smoke into his face. So he decided, I'm going to create this little aerosol pocket-sized can called Revenge and give smokers a dose of their own medicine. Bad air. Foul-smelling, disinfectant irritates their nose and their eyes, and now he carries it with him and sells it. It's called Revenge. Sad thing is some of you are writing that down as soon as you can. You can Google revenge because you'd like to get some. Revenge, that is. I actually Googled it and found a, there's a TV series called Revenge, uh, a movie called Revenge, a clothing line called Revenge, and a fragrance called Revenge. The sad thing is, in our human fallen nature, we want to seek vengeance instead of forgiveness. And that was a lesson that Peter had to learn uh, himself. You remember the time he walked up to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And he's thinking, I'm feeling pretty generous. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. I say to you, 70 times seven. Now, that wasn't meant to be an exact count, by the way. It's not, okay, 490 times, and then we're done. This is 491, you're in for it. No, no. Peter's question was the issue. How many times do I let things happen and forgive before I start fighting back. Listen, forgiveness is easy to preach on. It's easy to listen to in a sermon, but try living it out on the street, and it's a whole other story. Man, we like to hold on to that unforgiveness. We like to hold on to that anger. Author Frederick Buchner put it this way, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to savor the last toothsome morsel is in many ways a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Listen, again, Jesus gave us an example to follow by not reviling back when he was reviled. And he was reviled. Remember, as Jesus hung there on the cross, what did they say? Well, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? If you're really the son of God, come down from that cross. And I think if you or I were in that, put in that situation with the power that Jesus had, and they said something like that to me, you want me to come down? Fine, I'm coming down. You're going back up. Poof. It'd be done. But Jesus didn't do that. He gave us an example of submission, willingly going to the cross, and I might add, staying there. It's been said it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross, but it was love for us that kept him there. Look at the second thing that Jesus didn't do in verse 23. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Man, don't we do that? We're suffering something. We, we want to threaten back. Well, if you don't stop doing this, then I'm going to... You fill in the blank. Don't stop talking to me that way, then I'm leaving. I want a divorce. Don't stop treating me that way, then I'm going to sue you. Jesus didn't do that. If I don't get that time off, then I'm going to quit. No, when Jesus suffered, he didn't threaten back. Now, what did Jesus do? Three things. First, Jesus in verse 22 committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was absolutely sinless. When he was on this earth, he suffered two kinds of suffering. He suffered as a human being down here when he became a man, suffering for righteousness' sake. But he also suffered by taking on all the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, his suffering for the sins of the world is not an example that, that we can follow, but it is our redemption. It's something we believe. It's something we can accept because we can't imitate it. 
we're not sinless. We need to sin less, but we're not sinless. We're going to sin. Jesus is the only one that has never committed any sin. But with that said, when it comes to being reviled, and when we suffer for doing good, we're not to sin by reviling back or let deceit be found in our mouths through threats. We're to do the right thing. What's the right thing? Don't sin. Don't give into our flesh. But more than that, the second thing that we can do that Jesus did is verse 23. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, he placed the whole situation, his whole cause, his whole interest into the hands of his father. Even though people wronged Jesus, he knew that his father would do what is right. You know what this word committed here means in verse 23? It means to let it go. Let it go. From the words of Frozen, let it go, let it go. It's a musical. Don't hold it back anymore. Listen, if someone has wronged you, let it go. Indiana, let it go. Listen, if people have wronged you, commit it to the Lord. Turn it over to the Lord. Drop it off with Him. Let it go. And then confidently rest in God's ability to handle the hurts that's been done to you. I can't tell you how important this is for us to place our case, our cause, our interest, the situation or circumstances where we've been wronged and hurt by people into the hands of the Lord. Just give it to the Lord. Instead of going bitter towards people, instead of getting all uptight and losing our heads, instead of seeking revenge, cast all our cares on him, the Bible says, because he cares for us. Listen, anyone can fight back. It takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit and let God fight his battles for him. You know, we've all heard the stories of the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, they, there are two American mountain families that carried on this, this grudge and feuding for, for decades. Probably no one, whoever has or ever will, quite match that Hatfield and McCoy grudge. But I did find this story. It's about a man in Tokyo, Japan, who was arrested because he had been so upset that he was denied entrance into a college for a graduate degree program 14 years earlier. So that every night from the hours of 8 p.m. to 2 a.m., he made harassing phone calls to the school. He would leave them on the answering machine of the professor that he thought was the one responsible for not letting him get into the program. Fourteen years he did that. Fourteen years of annoying phone calls, total more than 50,000 phone calls. Dude, let it go, okay? Get over it. Here's my point. Retaliation costs. Righteousness pays rich dividends like being able to sleep at night, not staying up to 2 o'clock in the morning making stupid phone calls. I mean, think about how many relationships are torn apart by anger and, and holding on to grudges. Let it go. Commit it to the Lord. So first, Jesus didn't sin when he was reviled. Second, he committed himself to the Lord. Third thing Jesus did was that Jesus saw the big picture. Jesus saw the purpose of suffering was to bring us salvation. Look at verse 24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now let's clear up uh, this misconception within this verse before we comment on it. Peter calls the cross here the tree. That Greek word for the tree that he uses is xylon, meaning an object made of wood. Peter's talking about the cross of Calvary upon which the Lord was crucified. He used the broader word to refer his readers back to Deuteronomy 21, Verse 22 through 23, you can look it up later, but there you read that the Jews did not practice crucifixion, but if a a victim was especially evil, they hung the dead body on a tree as a mark of shame. So just a reminder that Jesus' death on the cross was especially shameful. But what Peter is saying here is that Jesus saw the big picture. He knew that he would take your place there on the cross of Calvary, 
that he would be your substitute. He bore your sins on his body to give you his righteousness. The exchange of sin for righteousness is the gospel in a nutshell. Now, once you're saved, you have died to sins, and now you can live for righteousness. Died to sins means, means that sins no longer rule over your life. You have God's power now to say no to sin and to live a life pleasing to God. And so Peter is saying, by saying no to sin, it can ultimately lead your boss, your employer, your master into a relationship with Jesus, realizing that there are higher things at stake than our rights. It may be that God's plan to accomplish salvation for your boss is through you as you endure that hardship in that relationship. Or maybe God's plan that through you and your example that that harsh treatment of workers would stop. See, we need to understand that the stakes are much higher than our own rights. There's a bigger picture that we need to consider. The stakes are the salvation of your co-workers or the salvation of your boss. So instead of being all bummed out when you go back to work tomorrow, think of it as a place of ministry. God's called you to this, this mission field. So, we are to be, number one, submissive servants. Number two, we're, follow, we're to follow the example of our submissive Savior. And finally, number three, we need to be submissive sheep. Look at verse 25. Peter says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, sheep, they're not very bright animals, and they have no natural defense to protect themselves whatsoever. I mean, you've never heard of killer sheep, have you? You know, you never heard of, of college mascots. Oh, we're the killer sheep. And of course not. You know, a sheep without a shepherd, really, they wander aimlessly and can get themselves in all kinds of trouble. Now you understand why the Lord likens us to sheep. He saw you when you were going astray. You were bent and crooked because of sin, and yet he has compassion. He saw you as sheep without a shepherd. And let me tell you, if you're not a Christian today, that's still how he sees you, going astray, wandering aimlessly throughout this life. But to those of us that believe, he is our good shepherd. He's my shepherd. A shepherd is one who cares for his sheep and loves his sheep and protects his sheep and leads the sheep. And if a sheep was tired or injured, the shepherd, he would carry them. Every need that that sheep had, that shepherd would meet it. You know, the term shepherd is one of the oldest descriptions of God in Scripture. I think one of the best-loved psalms uh, was by David, a shepherd himself, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake, and so on. Isaiah understood this well when he wrote in Isaiah 40:11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Psalm 100, verse 3 Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and we are not ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So how can we make it in a world that is increasingly getting worse and worse and more evil? No problem. I have a shepherd, and he's a good shepherd. And he's one who's watching out for me. And he's leading me. And he's supplying all of my needs. And he's helping me make it through. So I have absolutely nothing to fear. I can submit to him knowing that he will work everything together for my good and for his glory. And in those times when I can't take one more step, he's there, and in his grace he will carry me that extra mile through that difficult situation no matter what it is. See, Jesus, as our good shepherd, he's he's our enabler. He's, as Peter says in verse 25, the overseer of my soul. I love that phrase. 
something very beautiful about the phrase that he's the overseer of souls. It implies that the soul is in special care of the Savior. It's an object of his special interest. It's of great value to him. That my soul is the object of his special guardianship. And he is, will not be unfaithful to the trust placed in him. Nothing safer than the human soul is when it's committed in faith to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So Jesus is the shepherd. He's a guardian of our souls. In his love, he cares for us. In his power, he protects us. In his wisdom, he guides us in the right way. Our job as dumb sheep, submit our hearts, submit our lives to him. Serve him fully and, and being a servant to those around us. You know, even though people, they can be stupid, okay? And they can, they can say stupid things. You know, it's true. People can be stupid. There, I just said it right there. People can be stupid. Amen? No. <laughs> can't believe you said people are stupid. No. They can be dumb. And nasty, hurtful things, right? They can say these things. That's precisely why they need to be forgiven. Listen, Jesus was patient with you. Definitely patient with me. Give people a chance. Be patient with them. They're running away from God, but they need to see God in action in your life. They need to see the God that we love by our actions, by our words, and by our work ethic, and the way that we respect and treat our bosses at work, or the way we respect and treat our employees. I want to close with this story. The pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh told of a conversation he had with a member of his congregation. The man said to him, you preachers talk a lot about do unto others, but when you get right down to it, it really comes down to basin theology. Basin theology, what's that, the pastor asked. Well, the man said, remember what Pilate did when he had the chance to acquit Jesus? He called for a basin and washed his hands of the whole thing. But Jesus, the night before his death, called for a basin and proceeded to wash the feet of the disciples. All comes down to basin theology. Which one will you use? See, one thing that should motivate us to submission and to be that servant is love. And the more you see what a servant Jesus was, the more you're going to fall in love with him. And the more you love him, the more you're going to want to serve him. And the way you serve him is by serving others. There cannot be a more perfect picture of a servant than found in Philippians 2, verse 5 and 8, speaking of Jesus, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Could there be anything more beautiful than the fact that Christ, though he was himself God, he humbled himself, for the sake of our redemption, for the sake of our salvation. The one who was complete fullness emptied himself for our sake. He came and lived a life that modeled submission, a life that returned us to full communion with God. There's nothing more beautiful than true submission. As we close this morning, submission has looked down upon today, and yet if Jesus did not submit to the Father, where would he be? would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. No way out. But Jesus did submit to the will of the Father and completed the work that he was sent to do. So too, may we follow his example as a servant, submitting our life to the Father and to those in authority over us, humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Let him lift us up 
And by our actions, just maybe a soul might be saved. By that, that heart change, just maybe someone you work with or someone you work for might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, as we close, if you've yet to surrender your, your, your own self to, to Christ, to submit your life to Jesus Christ, now is the time more than ever. Give your life to Him. To, ask for forgiveness. Give your soul to Him. He'll take care of you. He'll forgive you, and He'll give you a place in heaven. If that's your desire, as soon as service is over, please come up and talk to me. I'd love to give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've spent this morning in your word. And Lord, some things we, we really don't want to hear. Lord, I'd rather hear, if you have a bad boss, it's time for you to get even with them. <laughs> Lord, but you tell us to take your example, to follow in your footsteps, to do what is right. Lord, to submit to you first and to submit to those that have authority over us. To be good employees, to be good employers. Lord, but that simply means to be good servants. And Lord, when we look at what you've done for us, how you went to the cross to die for our sins, how we've been born again, how we have the promise of heaven, we've, we've been set free from the power and the chains of sin, we've been redeemed. How could we not want that for every person, man, woman, or child that we come in contact with? Lord, give us a desire for the lost. Help us to live and life in a way that people would want what we have to your glory and to your honor and to your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.